telling one another their minds on whatever subject turns up. And their minds are wonderfully antagonistic, and all their opinions are downright beliefs. Till you've been among them some time and understand them, you can't think but that they are quarrelling. Not a bit of it. They love and respect one another ten times the more after a good set family arguing bout, and go back, one to his curacy, another to his chambers, and another to his regiment, freshened for work, and more than ever convinced that the Browns are the height of company. The family training, too, combined with their turn for combativeness, makes them eminently quixotic. They can't let anything alone which they think going wrong. They must speak their mind about it, annoying all easy-going folk, and spend their time and money in having a tinker at it, however hopeless the job. It is an impossibility to a Brown to leave the most disreputable lame dog on the other side of a stile. Most other folk get tired of such work. The old browns, with red faces, white whiskers, and bald heads, go on believing and fighting to a green old age. They have always a crotchet going, till the old man with the scythe reaps and garners them away for troublesome old boys as they are. And the most provoking thing is that no failures knock them up, or make them hold their hands, or think you or me or other sane people in the right. Failures slide off them like July rain off a duck's back feathers. Jem and his whole family turn out bad and cheat them one week, and the next they are doing the same thing for Jack. And when he goes to the treadmill and his wife and children to the workhouse, they will be on the lookout for Bill to take his place. However, it is time for us to get from the general to the particular. So, leaving the great army of Browns, who are scattered over the whole empire on which the sun never sets, and whose general diffusion I take to be the chief cause of that empire's stability— let us at once fix our attention upon the small nest of browns in which our hero was hatched, and which dwelt in that portion of the royal county of Barks, which is called the Vale of White Horse. Most of you have probably travelled down the Great Western Railway as far as Swindon. Those of you who did so with their eyes open have been aware, soon after leaving the Didcot station, of a fine range of chalk hills running parallel with the railway on the left-hand side as you go down, and distant some two or three miles, more or less, from the line. The highest point in the range is the White Horse Hill, which you come in front of just before you stop at the Shrivenham station. If you love English scenery and have a few hours to spare, you can't do better the next time you pass than stop at the Farringdon Road or Shrivenham station, and make your way to that highest point. And those who care for the vague old stories that haunt countrysides all about England will not, if they are wise, be content with only a few hours' stay— for glorious as the view is, the neighbourhood is yet more interesting for its relics of bygone times. I only know two English neighbourhoods thoroughly, and in each, within a circle of five miles, there is enough of interest and beauty to last any reasonable man his life. I believe this to be the case almost throughout the country, but each has a special attraction, and none can be richer than the one I am speaking of and going to introduce you to very particularly, for on this subject I must be prosy. So those that don't care for England in detail may skip the chapter. Oh, young England, young England, you who were born into these racing railroad times, when there's a great exhibition or some monster sight every year, and you can get over a couple of thousand miles of ground for £3.10 in a five-weeks holiday, why don't you know more of your own birthplaces? You're all in the ends of the earth, it seems to me, as soon as you get your necks out of the educational collar for midsummer holidays, long vacations or what not, going round Ireland with a return ticket in a fortnight, dropping your copies of Tennyson on the tops of Swiss mountains, or pulling down the Danube in Oxford racing boats. 
and when you get home for a quiet fortnight, you turn the steam off and lie on your backs in the paternal garden, surrounded by the last batch of books from Mudie's library, and half bored to death. Well, well, I know it has its good side. You all patter French, more or less, and perhaps German. You have seen men and cities, no doubt, and have your opinions, such as they are, about schools of painting, high art, and all that. Have seen the pictures of Dresden and the Louvre, and know the taste of sauerkraut. All I say is, you don't know your own lanes and woods and fields. Though you may be chock full of science, not one in twenty of you knows where to find the wood sorrel or bee orchis which grow in the next wood, or on the down three miles off, or what the bog bean and wood sage are good for. And as for the country legends, the stories of the old gable-ended farmhouses, the place where the last skirmish was fought in the civil wars, where the parish butts stood, where the last highwayman turned to bay, where the last ghost was laid by the parson, they're gone out of date altogether. Now in my time, when we got home...